The question we're asking over the next four weeks is, why does it matter that Jesus was a human being? And it's one of the key, core, foundational principles, theological truths of the Christian faith that God became a man in the person of Jesus, the Christ that we follow. And I said last week, and I think it's worth repeating this morning, that I I understand why it's important for us to believe that Jesus was God, that God came to earth and God walked around on the earth. And I won't go into why again. You can go back and listen to that sermon on our website. But, but I understand why that's so important. But before this sermon series, I, I kind of failed to understand why it was important to understand and believe the other side, that God was man. I mean, I want to say and fight for and talk about and sing about man being God, Jesus being God, but it's hard for me to really understand, it was hard for me really to understand why it's so important that God was man. And this sermon series is, is really coming from a, a place that, that just answers that question. Why is it a big deal that God was a man? Why is it a big deal that we believe that Jesus was a full human being? Now, this sermon uh, is exciting for a couple reasons. First, because I love my family and I love the trailblazers and it's all going to kind of come together in this passage of scripture, which is exciting for me. Uh, secondly, uh, because family is a big deal. And I was thinking about my earliest memories. I think about that a lot. It's one of my favorite questions to ask people is what's like your first memories. And for me, I can remember pretty early because my parents got divorced when I was three. And so it's really easy for me to split like were my parents together or not when I remember that thing happening. And, and I have about three memories before, I, before my parents were divorced when I was two and a half or whatever years old. And I, as I was thinking about this sermon series and, and it came into my head and I had never realized this, I had never thought about this before, but all the memories that I have before I was three years old are negative in one way or another. Uh, and that's not, I already knew that. It was, that's pretty obvious. But they're all connected to family. And in some ways, I think they're all connected to, to family deteriorating, at least in a young child's mind. I remember on the smallest level, my dad not picking me up, and it wasn't a very far walk. We were coming out of Disneyland, and I think in some ways, even as a kid, and my parents had just split up, it was like, all oh, this is bad. Everything is bad right now, and now my dad won't pick me up. Uh, I remember almost getting in a car accident. We may have even gotten in a car accident, uh, and I remember with my family, just thinking, we're standing in the middle of the road. That's all I can really remember. But something about it, as two and a half year old, honestly, like it registered, it stayed in my mind. And I think it may be, it was a chance that I lost my family. I couldn't have explained that or understood that. And then I remember my parents fighting. I remember my parents having a fight, and it was one of those things that's so dreamlike, but I walked into the apartment at about 20 years old, same apartment complex, and I was like, wow, I've had this somewhere in the back of my brain for 18 years now. And again, it's like this deterioration of family and this fear of family not being what it should be. And those things stuck in my brain. And I think that partly they stuck and they're memories that I have because we all, we all, even if we haven't had it, covet family. And we want good family. 
We want solid family. We want healthy family. We want whole family. We want a family that is with us and that we can see often. I think that the two things we fear in life, maybe more than anything else, are death and being alone. I think that the ultimate thing we fear is dying alone, dying without anybody to love us, dying with nobody recognizing or paying attention or knowing about it or thinking about us when we're gone. I think that we want to be loved and we never want to die. And family is connected to this in a, in a very profound way because family is, is supposed to be, is supposed to be the one group of people that we just kind of have that will love us no matter what, that will be there for us no matter what. And here's kind of the issue. Some of you, I already know, I can already see it in your faces right here in the squintiness, like I said earlier. Uh, you're like, yeah, now my family, I mean, my family was never there and my family is terrible and I don't want to be around my family and I don't like my family and when I'm dying, I'm going to call somebody else because they're like the last people I want to have. They're too loud and they're, and I, and they're not likable and they have so many issues and, and I, just, I just, I don't feel that. I mean, you say it's scary not to have family, but if you've seen my family, then you know what scary really is. I mean, and, and, and so here, here's the thing. I think like when you think about these fears, this dying and this, this family issue, I mean, just think about these. Even if you're like, I don't like my family, we're going to cover that in a second. I'm going to offer a better family through the birth of Jesus. But, but like, think about this. We think of like sad things, things that we don't want to have happen to us, things that we think are terrible in life. We think of like elderly people alone in a nursing home. Not like a big one that like, I don't want to be there. I, I grew up working in retirement homes. My family's always been part. I like them a lot. They have decent food and great cookie bars and uh, good community. But, but a lot of people nonetheless are like, that's not where I want to end up. And for a lot of people, I think it's like if I ever move in, and I see this, I see this with a lot of people, it's like I can't go into a retirement-type nursing home because that's kind of the end for me, and then nobody will come see me, and my life is over. And we picture that as just like this, this sad place in life. We think of, of, of people like with a life sentence to prison and no one to visit them, and we think like that would be the worst. If I was sitting for the rest of my life in a jail cell, in a prison cell, and nobody would ever come and see me, nobody would ever write a letter, I would have reached like the bottom. We think of the widow who is childless, and what's going to happen at the end of their life? There's going to be nobody for them, we think, and it's going to be terrible, and they're going to die alone. We just like fear not having family. And we fear dying without family. I'll be honest. I'll just be uh, just up front. I mean, I, I, Brynn and I don't have children. We've documented that in a sermon series and our miscarriages and the struggle there. And I'm not going to rehash it all. But part of the reason that bothers me is because I'm going to need somebody to change my diaper when I'm 95 years old, you know? So I'm super nice to my niece because I need, like, I need her someday when I'm too old to do things for myself. And, and it's true. I mean, it's sad. I, I don't need a kid in my life to make me happy. I don't need any of that. Our lives are pretty busy, Brynn and I. We love to have a clean 
clean house and it's quiet. Our niece, my niece spent the night on Friday and it was like a tornado went through and we're like, oh my goodness. And my dog is like, oh wow, it's loud in here all the time. Somebody be quiet, you know? And so I don't need, I've never needed a child. I don't need a child. But someday when I'm really, really old, if Bryn's died before me, then I'm going to be like, who's going to be there? Who's going to be there? It's this fear that, that we have. What am I going to do? Can't even cook for myself now. What's going to happen when I lose my mind, you know? And here's the good news. Here's the great news to these fears. God became a man. Here's what Hebrews 2, 10 through 11 says. We'll cover uh, to verse 18, but here's where it starts. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Let me just be totally upfront. This is talking about Christians. Sometimes, and, and we say this, and I think it's in a song like Jeremiah was a bullfrog, I think. Maybe it's in there. Um, maybe I'm thinking of the wrong song, but like everybody is God's children. And the Bible kind of makes some references to that end, but, but most of the time when it speaks about God's children and God's family, it's not talking about everybody. God created everybody, but that's not who it's talking about. It's talking about people who have chosen to follow Jesus, who are Christians, who have chosen to enter into a relationship with God through believing that Jesus died on a cross to save them from their sins, and then he rose again to conquer death and, and make everything good for us eventually in eternity. It's talking about people who have become Christians. And so here, when the Bible says, when the writer of Hebrews says that, that, that Jesus, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, he's talking about people that can look forward to heaven someday who have accepted Jesus as their savior and now have a different life, a better life in some ways, but ultimately await their ultimate glory when they will die or when Jesus will return and we will go up to a place that you probably have heard of called heaven. And Jesus did this. Jesus offered this to us. And so the writer of Hebrews says it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, that's God, right? You got that, God. Should make, excuse me, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect. Now here's the deal, before we jump into that word pioneer right there, you need to understand that, that Jesus was perfect. I said that last week, he was sinless. In the whole book of Hebrews, you see it come up over and over and over again. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He was the perfect high priest. He was sinless. I mean, the book of Hebrews, if you're trying to say, I wanna know if Jesus was sinless, is that in the Bible? The book of Hebrews is like one of the first places you should turn to in your Bibles to read about it. And so the author isn't saying here, like, Jesus, because he was able to bring people into glory, because he was able to make Christians, because he was able to sacrifice and offer people a relationship with God, was turned into perfect person, like he stopped sinning or he was made better in some way. That's not what it's saying. The word perfect is used a bunch of different ways in the Bible. Um, and one of the ways that it's used is the fulfilling or the completing of like a course or a job. And so here what we're reading is that Jesus came to earth. We believe that Christmas time he came, he was born. And when he brought sons and glories, you and I who are Christians, uh, into glory, that's when his work 
was complete. When he had made a way for us to enter into a relationship with God, Jesus was made complete because his job was finished. Now here's the really, here's the really cool part. This is the best part of the whole sermon. It's just as far as awesome. Um, it's my new favorite verse in the Bible in some ways because this word for pioneer can be pathfinder. It can be, this is where it's going to get really good right here, just being an Oregonian and in Portland area. It can be the Savior who blazed the trail. We're getting closer. We're getting closer. He made a way for which humanity could do what it was made for. That's boring. The Greek word translated is archegos. And here's what John MacArthur says. He's, he's a reputable source. So this is like real. This is a good, reputable source. The word archegos means pioneer. It means leader. It means author. It means trailblazer. Archegos translated incidentally in Hebrews 12.1, looking into Jesus the author, you know of our faith. That's archegos. It means anyone who begins something that others follow in. It could be something who starts, someone who starts a family that others are born into. It could be someone who founds a city where others come to live. It could be somebody, this is the key part again, this is the fun part, that blazes a trail that others follow. Anyone who starts something and leads out is an archegos. And here the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus Christ is our, I bolded this, perfect trailblazer. That's what it's, it's is yes. I couldn't find a translation of the Bible that said it. I looked, trust me. Um, that leads the path to glory so that God, by making a perfect trailblazer, can gather up his sons and they can follow their captain into glory. It pleased God who does all things for his glory, who made all things for his glory to the end that they might give him glory. That's what the first part of this verse means. It means, excuse me, it pleased him to make this captain perfect so that he could blaze the trail into the Father's presence and bring along with him all the sons that God had designated to enter into his glory. He's our perfect trailblazer. One commentary says the word could be translated champion too, and I don't know if it's a coincidence, but that could mean the Blazers are going to win the championship this year because this sermon got preached. And if they win, it's because of this sermon. But what the Bible is saying is that Jesus is our perfect trailblazer. I'm not into Christian t-shirts, and we ran out of time this week because I was drugged up for half of the week because I had surgery Monday. Um, but I have, a, I have a Christian t-shirt design uh, going on in my brain, and it's like the Trailblazers logo turned to be a cross. Um, and it says our perfect trailblazer. It's good, right? If you're into the Christian t-shirt thing, which I'm not because, I don't know, it's never changed anybody's opinion on anything. I've never met a man who just was like, oh, that Christian t-shirt, and then I just gave my life to Jesus. I fell down on my knees and started crying and became a Christian because it said Jesus is our trailblazer, and it looked just like a trailblazer logo. I mean, So that's why I'm not a Christian t-shirt guy. Different story altogether. What the Bible is saying, this is so clear. Every time you think about the trailblazers now, I want you to think about this. Jesus blazed the trail for us to have a relationship with God. Jesus blazed the trail so that we could be part of the family of God. He came down to earth. He was the son of God before he came to earth, but he lived on this earth. And then he said, here's my mission. My mission is to live perfectly, sinlessly, and then die on a cross so that people might be saved from their sins and then rise again. And he did it all. And so now we have access to the Father through him because he has blazed the way. 
The gospel is the story of Jesus being our trailblazer. The gospel is the story of Jesus making a way for us to have a relationship with God so that we can be part of, and this is so crazy, this is what it says here, the same family as Jesus, the family of God. Jesus came, he suffered, and he died. He was born, even, so that we could be in his same family. Now, this, this is like, this is, this is big time. This is a huge statement. And you go, well, this, I can't see this family. You know, how do I know if this family will be there for me? I, I mean, this is a big deal. Like, when we're talking about our fears, and we're talking about the fear of being alone, and we're talking about the fear of not having a family, I mean, this is, this is a huge statement. Because God says, look, I sent my son to earth. I invented Christmas in part so that you could be part of my family. Now, when you read an analogy, sometimes he will say, well, that's an analogy. I mean, I don't know what that looks like. I mean, it's just God's way of speaking to us, like we talked about last week, familial terms. I mean, I can kind of get that. But when we read an analogy, it teaches us truth. No good analogy has ever existed that didn't teach something good. And so the Bible is trying to explain to us the type of relationship that Jesus has trailblazed for us. And the Bible uses the term family. Now I know, I know that a lot of us were like, I don't have a good family. It doesn't make sense to me. But here's, here's the Bible is not saying like, you know, the family of God in a way that's like our family. He's saying like the perfect family. And I don't know if you've ever been around a family that just has warmth. I have. I've grown up in one and I'm appreciative of that. But like where you just sense warmth and you sense that people care about each other, and you get the impression that, that even if one of those family members was sitting in a prison somewhere, that they would still be loved and accepted, and there would even be like a level of pride in that person just because they're part of that family. Have you ever been around a family where, I, I don't know how to describe this, but like you walk in and you just feel like the warm blanket goes on? And maybe your family just is a family like where you feel like, you know, every time you show up or you're around them, it's like a, a wet, cold blanket and it's no good. But if you've ever been around a family where it's just like the warm blanket comes on when you're in their presence because the love and the kindness and, and really the joy, even though they're not always, you know, happy with each other, but even when they're mad at each other, there's like this, this sense of peace and joy and nobody has to apologize to each other because they already kind of know that they're sorry and that they're forgiven and it doesn't ever really need to happen. You don't need to say sorry to each other. Have you ever been a part of a family like that? Then you kind of get a picture of what, what the Bible is saying to us, what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us about what Jesus has opened the door for in regards to our lives. And the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus came to earth in part, and we'll get to that part in a second. He came to earth in part to open the door to the family of God, which is the most perfect, loving, great family. Now, here's one of the problems with this. You go, well, time out, time out, time out, time out. I've been to church, and sometimes they refer to themselves as the family of God, like they are the family of God, and I didn't feel any type of warmth. I just felt like wet blanket, and those people were mean to me, or they didn't talk to me, and they're not very nice to me. And, uh, and maybe you walked in here today, and I hope you got greeted. We have pretty good greeters at this church, but, but maybe you didn't get greeted, and you're sitting in your chair right now like, well, so you Christians, you people who congregate on Sunday mornings, you're the family of God, but I don't feel that warmth. Now, a couple things to remember. While we're here on earth, first of all, 
the family of God is going to still have some problems. I mean, we're going to have some difficulties and some issues, and I hope at this church, and I think at this church, I believe at this church, you find that warmth and that care, and I know that people were praying for me when I had surgery, and I know I was praying for Jan, who had her surgery this week, and I know there's care, and people would have brought me meals if I just would have said, like, I should have said, I'm not well enough to cook, and Bryn's going to be at work. I could have had free meals, and, and there's this family structure, but sometimes there's problems, and there's issues, and people mess up, and people do stupid stuff, and it doesn't seem like they care. And that's going to happen in a family, but it doesn't mean we don't love each other. Now, here's the other problem. Here's, the visible church on earth doesn't necessarily constitute the family of God. The invisible church on earth, and I'm stealing these terms, the invisible church on earth does constitute the family of God. That means, if that made no sense to you, that in our midst right now, there are probably people who aren't part of the family of God. They show up to church maybe every single week, but they've never really given themselves to Jesus. They've never said, I accept your sacrifice. I accept that you have blazed this trail for me and I'm gonna walk down it and follow you and live for you and declare you Lord and Savior. And so they're not really part of the family of God and they still show up and they look like they're part of our church. I mean, I, this, there's, no, there's no like physical analogy that I can give you, but picture like you're having a family party and you have a wonderful, nice little family and there's a, there's a drunk jerk guy in the back yelling at everybody. And, and somebody comes in that's visiting your family, and they're like, man, your family is messed up. And you're like, we don't even know the guy. He's not, he's not, it's hard to explain, right? Because he's there, and he's, you know, he's talking to people, and he looks like he might fit in. He's got the Christmas sweater on. I was picturing it all in a Christmas party in my head. But, uh, you know, and, that, and that's like, it, that's kind of what can happen in church, especially in the American church. We're not going to be thrown to the lions if you declare that you're a Christian. It's really easy for people who aren't actually a part of the family of God to show up, hang out, look like the church, but not really act like the church because they're not part of the family. They're outsiders. And so I, I just want to make clear that the family of God demonstrates all the good, wonderful qualities that I described in a family earlier. Sometimes because of sin and problems, we mess up and we make mistakes and we're not as nice as we should. Sometimes because outsiders are in our midst, it doesn't look as good as it should, but we want them here because we want to tell them they can be part of the family of God. Uh, and, and, but sometimes it doesn't look like that. But when you see it in a church and you find the people, and I found it here, you're like, yeah, that's a family. I mean, that, that's what I've always wanted. And not only that, but here's the really cool part. Here's the cool part. God is like the dad of the family. I mean, there's dads mess up so many families. I mean, let's just beat, let's get it out there. Dads are just in this country, they're just jacking up our families like crazy because they're not there or they're jerks or they set a bad example and it's passed down. And and I'll be honest with you, I've seen I've seen a lot of people who have bad moms uh, and 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 just kind of got right through it and not a big deal. But not a lot of people who have bad dads come out unscathed without some emotional issues, without some difficulties, without some hurts, without some struggles, without some problems that they really got to try to deal with or they'll never deal with one or the other. It's just really difficult. But this family, even though we got some problems and we make some mistakes and sometimes we get in trouble, the family of God has the perfect father, the heavenly father who loves us and cares about us and even, even allowed for his son to die for us. I mean, this is, this is beautiful imagery. 
And, and that last part, I just, this is, this is like, this is one of the most unbelievable statements in all the Bible. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus should be ashamed to call me his brother. He absolutely should be, called, should be ashamed of that. I mean, I became a Christian when I was four years old. I said, Jesus, I'll follow you. That didn't really mean much to me until I was 17 when it really meant something. And then I just did a lot of stupid stuff in college. Like, yeah, I'm really going to follow you, but I'm not really going to pay attention to what you want from me. So, so, I mean, he should be absolutely ashamed to call me part of his family. I mean, I'm like the, I don't know, I like my uncle a lot, but it's always the uncle that we throw under the bus. But like, I'm like the drunk uncle in the back room, you know, that, that nobody likes, nobody wants to talk to, and he shows up late with his new girlfriend. You know, and I, like, <laughs> like I said, I have good uncles, but everybody always throws the uncle under the bus. Um, if you say your sister, you're going to be in trouble, you know, and so, but you know what I'm saying? Like, and Jesus is not ashamed of me. He puts his arm around me. He cares about me. He loves me. He brings me back into the fold even when I mess up. He forgives me for my sins. He cares about me. He takes care of me, and he's not ashamed to call me his brother, and he's not ashamed to call you women his sisters. That's mind-blowing. He blazes this trail, and then we walk all around, all around, going in the trees and the woods, off the trail, off the beaten path, and then, and then he's not ashamed anyway to call us his brothers and his sisters. Then it goes into some Old Testament quotations, and um, says, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. And I don't want to dive into why these are here or how the New Testament uses the Old Testament and how they misquote it sometimes and use it to their purposes and stop when they want to, even if it's in the middle of the sentence. I just want to say this. There's a few things that come out of these three passages that are really, really important. First, they support the family relationship established by the son and having God as the father. Uh, in each of them, children is kind of the emphasis. The second thing is uh, that the son lives with God's people. We'll see this in a second. And the third is that the son had the right relationship with God through trust, and the children can also have the right relationship with God through trust. And he continues in Hebrews two fourteen through 17. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of of people. Did you pay attention? It's Christmas. It's Christmas verse right there in Hebrews. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, that's Christians, and all people have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. God became a man in order that you might become part of his family. And then he moves on to this other aspect, this other thing we're really scared of, death. It says, he who holds the power of death, and it's a reference to the devil. 1 John 3, 8 says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's 
work. Part of the reason that Jesus came to earth was so that the devil's work, Satan's work, the one who is opposite of family, the one who wants nothing but to hurt and destroy you, the one who could be summarized in everything bad that you've ever seen in a family. Think about the most abusive, the most hurtful, the most wretched relationships that you've seen that call themselves family, and then picture Satan just working and enjoying and liking all of it. Jesus came to destroy that work. And part of that work, part of the work of Satan, part of what he's done is he has made it so that we are scared and apart from Christ should be scared of death. And Jesus came. He was born. He laid in a manger in order that you could become part of the family of God, but also so that you no longer have to fear death. You can be free from the fear of of death. I'm reading the second greatest book ever written. I actually finished it last night and then went chapter one. So if I seem tired, you'll know why. Um, Mark of the Lion series, the first book is called The Voice in the Wind. Every Christian should have to read the Bible. Every Christian should have to read a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And every Christian should have to read the Mark of the Lion series, at least the first book. And I guarantee you'll read the first chapter of the second book if you read the first book. I'm just going to, that's it. I'll stop it there. Um, But there's this scene. Oh, man, I was crying in bed the other night. I can never go to sleep after I'm reading this book. I'm serious. It's that good. I can never, like, I can, I just, it's, you know how reading's supposed to make you sleepy? I lay there thinking about, and this is not in any way intended to be uh, anti-my marriage, but I lay there thinking about Hadessa, the main character, after I have got trying to go to sleep. It was happening last night. And, and let me just give you the kind of brief. I'm not going to tell you too much because you need to go buy it right when you leave church today. Just go buy it and just read it, and you'll be done by the, the end of the week, and you won't do anything else if you have your way. Hadessa is a slave, a Jewish slave, a Christian slave at the hands of the Roman, and she's part of a Roman family, and she's, she loves this family. She loves them unconditionally. She loves them. I'm going to cry right now talking about Hadessa. I did not see Hadessa bringing me to tears in the sermon. It's so good. It's so good. Go read it. And, and Hadessa loves this family unconditionally. She is like the perfect Christian uh, woman, actually. She really is. Um, she's fictional, so I can say that. Um, and, and there's this scene where where her master, the, the head of the family, is sick and he's dying. And this won't give much away. You won't even care about him. Um, and he's sick and he's dying. And, and he looks at her, Hadessa, and he loves her. He cares about her. And not in a romantic way. He has a good marriage, but he loves this slave girl because she's been so good to the family and, and she's sung to him while he's sick and she's taken care of him when she needs to take care of him. But, but she's actually uh, his daughter's slave. And so he looks at her and he says, Hadessa, if it wasn't for Julia, his daughter, I would free you. It's like this really powerful moment. You're like, it's the first time he's really expressed that type of affection. And she looks back at him. In one of the most beautiful moments in book history and says, I am free. I hope that one day you will be too. And here's this man on his deathbed, completely unfree. His wife is worshiping the gods of Rome, hoping that they'll fix him, but scared that he's going to die, not having a clue where he is going to go. And Edessa is beaten and hurt and thrown into slavery, but Edessa knows true freedom. 
She never feels the need to be away from this family because she knows Jesus and that Jesus has set her free even from the fear of death. And Jesus came and is so beautiful. And there's more. This book, I could just use this whole book as an illustration. The, the other part of this is that, that Hadessa, her family dies right at the beginning. There's no giveaway there. It's in the first two pages. You'll think it's the worst book ever. Hadessa's family is killed. And yet you find in these moments throughout the books where she encounters Christians that are few and far between. And it's like she has found her long lost brothers and sisters every single time. And the book demonstrates this reality that the, that the writer of Hebrews has said many, many years ago. Look, Jesus came so that you could be freed from death and for the family of God. And this is available not to people who are perfect, not to people who are good, not to people who fit in with the family or look like the rest of the family, the church. I mean, this is not available to those people. This is available to all who will place their faith in Jesus and follow the trail that he has already blazed. And we know this because here it says Abraham's descendants, and in the New Testament it's clear who that is, Romans 9, 8. In other words... It is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And then Galatians 3, 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. You see, what we need to do to be part of the family of God and be freed from the fear of death is we need to place our faith in Jesus as the Savior and Lord of all. He moves and he says that Jesus had become the perfect high priest so that he could make atonement for us. And this is what we believe about Jesus' death, that he made atonement for us. This is why it matters to follow him. This is why you can't be saved from the fear of death without him. It's why you can't come into the family of God without him. In the Old Testament, they would kill animals to make atonement for people, basically to satisfy the anger of God uh, when people messed up. But Jesus is coming as a sinless human being. He was able to make the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, something we'll talk about throughout this sermon series a couple more times. He was able to die once for all. He was able to die so that we don't have to kill animals every single week, but instead we can just place our faith in him and become part of the family of God. The purpose of the incarnation, one author says, was that through his death, he might make atonement for the people's sins. So that he might do in effect, in reality, what the Old Testament sacrifices, what animals could only do kind of in thought or in theory. And here's the key part. This is what you gotta hear. You just, you need to understand this. As we talk about Christmas and we think about Christmas and why did Jesus have to become a man? Why was he a man? Why does that matter? And it's this. Since death was the prescription for victory, and by victory I mean the, the removal of fear from death and, and removal of slavery of sin and, and being able to become part of the, the family of God. I mean, if this is victory, and if the prescription for that victory is death, the only way that the Son, Jesus, could accomplish that needed task was to become a human. God cannot die. And so Jesus had to be born so that he could die and he had to die so that you and I could be freed for the family of God and from the fear of death. 
Hebrews 2.18, I want to read it because it's just a little preview of next week and then I'll finish. It says, because he himself suffered what he was temp- when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The Life Application Commentary says this about these verses. 2.10 through 18 places great emphasis on the purposefulness of the incarnation and the sufferings of Jesus. The Son took on humanity for specific reasons to give us help, to destroy the devil, to to liberate us from the fear of death, and to make us holy through the forgiveness of sins. The incarnation, therefore, far from being a topic relegated to a theological ivory tower, has vast practical ramifications for life in this world. The living Christ being our source for help, deliverance, and holiness. Jesus had to come and be a man. God had to become a man because otherwise you couldn't be part of the family of God and otherwise you would need to fear death for the rest of your life. The incarnation calls all to Christianity. I mean, just God became a man and he became a man so that you could be freed for his family and from death. And some people here maybe even some of you who look like you're part of the family, are standing on the outside going, sounds nice. I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to, I believe that Jesus was a great guy. I like church. I want to be here. I want to kind of feel the outer glow of this nice warm family, but I don't, I'm not going to be a part of it. Or you haven't decided to be a part of it, even if you haven't rejected it. And this morning, I think this could be the morning when God's calling you and saying, hey, I came to earth, I became a man so that you could be freed for the family of God and from the fear of death. Why don't you just have faith in me? Why don't you accept my gift of salvation, my gift of atonement, my gift of family? Why don't you just give me your life today and put away these two grand fears? I mean, you don't want to die alone, you don't have to. You can die at least knowing that God will be there. And I'll tell you this, if you invest in the family of God, and this is something that I look forward to and place hope in, if you invest in the family of God, the church, then I can guarantee you that the church will be there for you when you're facing the tough moments of your life. If you treat the family of God like a restaurant where you show up and you you know, have your, get yourself fed and you move on your merry way and you might even drop some money in the offering to pay your way. If you treat it like that, then don't really have any hope that we're gonna be there for you when you need us. But if you invest here, I guarantee that at least in this church, we will be there for you when you need us because we will be your family. And, and But you, you might be missing. And so look, become a Christian. I, it's just, I mean, Jesus came. Jesus was born. God became a man. And he didn't just do it for fun. It probably wasn't that fun. I don't, I've never been in a manger. It doesn't seem that cool. You know, I've never been in heaven, so I can't do like a comparison, heaven and earth. Like, it just seems like heaven's better, even if you only know that we float around on clouds or believe, we don't even know, that's not even true. But even if that's all you picture is a harp and clouds better than what you're doing with Monday morning, right? I mean, come on, you know that. And Jesus left that even the really bad view of that, and came to this earth, not that good. And then, being God, he was made fun of. I mean, that's like, I don't know. 
it's hard for me to be made fun of because I have a level of pride in who I am and the way I live my life, and I don't like people to say bad things about me. But like when you're God and you're perfect, that's gotta it's gotta be sucky. I mean, it's just, I mean that's that can't be very good. And then they they made fun of him and they mocked him and they were mad at him and they tried to trick him and then they arrested him and then they beat him up and then they beat him up a little more and then they scourged him which would have been absolutely terrible and then they made him hold a cross and they put a crown of thorns in his head and then they killed him. And he did it all. He allowed for all of that to happen so you could be freed for the family of God and from the fear of death. Accept it. Others of us are Christians. And there's just, I think there's there are profound implications. I mean, I just, I'm around too many Christians that live to stay alive. And it's like, you fear this death thing just as much as anybody else. You constantly worry about dying. You're freaked out about it. You're driven by being healthier. I'm not saying those. I'm not saying it's bad to be healthy. I'm, it's good to be healthy. But I'm saying like this is your life is like driven by being alive. Your life should not be driven by being alive. When Jesus has blazed the trail for you to live forever, your life should be driven by Jesus, living for Him, following Him, serving Him, being obedient to Him giving back as much as you can to him because he has saved you from sin and death and saved you into the family of God. Here's another one. I mean, when you think about Jesus coming, the incarnation, when you think about the incarnate Christ, actually celebrate it. I mean, I know when we sing the songs, they can become just tradition that comes out of our mouth, no big deal. And, and I would like you to sing those songs for real because there's some Christian, Christian songs are actually really beautifully written songs, much better than some other worship music that, that even we do here on, on Sunday morning. I mean, they're, they're profound and rich. I mean, anybody that can squeeze incarnate deity into a song, like that's pretty, that's pretty good. That's pretty well written. I mean, that's not, that's not Z100 stuff. I mean, that's good music. And, and so I would like it if you like sang it like the author felt it when he was writing it. But even more, just as we go through Christmas, don't go through the emotions. Sometimes like reading like an Advent thing or picking up a Bible or thinking about Jesus, is like you feel like it gets in the way. But Jesus came to live so that you could have like this lack of fear and this family, and that's pretty good. And I don't think Jesus should get in the way of the celebration of his birth, the fact that God became man. He shouldn't get in the way of that. I mean, can you imagine going to a kid's Christmas party and being like, hey, I know you're turning four today, but there's a Blazer game on, and so we're going to need you to sit in the other room and be super quiet because we're trying to enjoy this out here as adults. Stupid. Super stupid. And that's how we treat Christmas. Jesus, it's your birthday, man, but just don't get in my way because a lot of stuff to do. There's a lot of fun things to have. Hey, I know you're part of the family, we treat Jesus like we made him part of the family. I made you part of the family, and I will take you out of it. You know, like, I mean, that's how we treat Jesus. Like, and he's like, wait a minute. I freed you from the fear of death, and, by the way, I brought you into this family. So celebrate him. And then the last part is, and this is so big, and I've just, I've found this to be just, it's life-changing, really, just to be honest with you. And Treat the church as a family. 
Don't treat it as a restaurant. Don't treat it as, as a tradition. Treat it as a family. And I'll be honest, like, the more you do this, the more you'll like our church. Some churches, I think, the more you got involved and you'd like it less probably. But our church, like, the more, the more you're around us, maybe not me, but I'll say everybody, the more you're around everybody in this congregation, the more you serve with us, the more you take part in what we're doing here and you help and you do the dishes metaphorically instead of just paying somebody else to do it, the, the more you will enjoy it and you will feel the truth of this passage that there is a family of God that exists on this earth. We, we get here at 7.45 or so, depending on, you know, how quickly I get out of bed in the morning. Uh, I get here at 7.45 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Nobody in the world wants to be up at 7.45 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Not a, not a single person wants to do that. And we like to be here together. Not because it's fun to put curtains up or to build these things. I actually bled this morning. Not because it's fun to lift speakers, but because... It's like seeing family. We're not always happy with each other and people are late and, and, and that's okay. We still like it. I almost, a couple weeks ago when I skipped church because I was so sick, uh, I almost came afterwards to help the guys put stuff back into the trailer. I thought it would send a mixed message, like I didn't really want to be at church, uh, so I didn't do it. But I was like, man, I kind of, even though I hate what we do, I hate having to do this every week, I kind of miss being with them. Don't tell Brandon or Kevin or Mike or Graham or Dan. Or, don't tell them that I just said that. But, and some of you are just missing. Even if you're part of the family of God and you become a Christian, you're just like, yep, in the family of God, never hang out with them, never really talk to them, never really see them, don't really know them, but yet family of God. Sunday mornings are cool. Family. He doesn't use the metaphor of a restaurant. He doesn't use the metaphor of a business, even though the American church has far too often become that. He doesn't use the metaphor of an amusement park. He doesn't use the metaphor of something that is here to entertain you. He uses the metaphor of a family. And he says, look, Jesus was born. He took on flesh and blood so that you could be part of the family of God. So this is what I, I just want this. Just put this in your head. Just, I mean, as you think about the incarnation, the fact that God became a man, he took on flesh. Just think this. It's very simple. I've already said it four times. God became man so that we might be freed from the fear of death and for the family of God. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray for the people in this room. I pray for this church those who are a part of it, those who are here for the first time. I pray, God, that we would take seriously the gift that you have offered us. I mean, God, it's so easy. It's even at Christmas when we really think about you. I mean, we think about you at Christmas and Easter, and it's still just so easy to kind of just glance over you, to forget about you, to relegate you to, to some little small section of our lives, God. But when we remember that you came so that we could be in your family and not have to fear death, that, that our greatest fears, being alone and dying, could be taken away as you died alone on the cross. It should compel us to celebrate you, to be excited about you, to worship you, to love you, to pray to you, to talk to you. And I pray that that would be true for us. 
God, this is, I think, I think what we're talking about in this series is, is for a lot of us, just different than what we're used to talking about. And why did it really matter that you were a man, God? But I pray you take these things that we're learning and you would cause them to make changes in us. God, I pray for the people who, who sit in front of me right now and those who stand behind me, God. And I pray, God, that, that you right now in their hearts would just take this sermon, what I just preached, and, and this passage of Scripture and your word, and, and you would just speak to them individually. God, I can only speak to a broad audience, but you can speak to people where they are at. And I know that some people here, God, need to give their lives to you. And I pray that they would do that. And today, they would enter into the family, to your family. And others, God, need to stop worrying about death. And I pray, God, that this morning you would speak to them and say, fear not. And others, God, here, need to treat our church like a family. They need to take part. They need to be there for people. And I pray that right now you say, hey, I brought you in a family. And God, you would move them to just want to be a part of your family in a greater way. You know, God, what we need, and I pray you'd speak what we need into our lives this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for coming here. Thank you for coming here to free us from the fear of death and for your family. I pray these things only because I have a relationship with you through the atonement that you offered me on that cross. Amen.